you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 8, beginning reading in verse 20 here in just a moment. If not, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you. I want to uh, thank Josh for uh, preaching last week. I, I oftentimes uh, miss when Josh preaches because I'm, I'm gone somewhere, uh, so it's always good to be here when he does. I, I was helped and refreshed. It's good to know that um, Paul can praise others for preaching Christ even with wrong motives and that our joy should be centered in the work and the accomplishment and even the preaching and proclamation of Jesus Christ, uh, not just in the things that surround us and the, the uh, difficulties that we might find in our lives. It was, it was refreshing, brother. It was good, and I, I was encouraged by it, as I'm sure others were as well. So thank you for that. Uh, to bring us then back to the book of Exodus, where we will be today, I want to remind you that uh, we began our look two weeks ago at these ten wonders or plagues that Moses and Aaron bring upon the people of Egypt by the word of God. Um, and we talked about how we can organize those better. And, and we started by saying the ten of them can be organized in pairs. And if you organize them in pairs, uh, you can kind of organize them by water, land, animals, and then air, and then the heavens. And so the first two uh, belong to the water, the frogs, and turning water into blood belong to the water. The next two seem to deal with the land, as both the flies and the gnats come from the very ground itself. And uh, even here with the flies, it's, it's going to be said as we read that the, the whole land was destroyed because of them. We then move on today to the, the next two, which are about the, the diseases of animals. We have boils that fall upon people, but before that we have livestock undercurring a plague. Uh, we have then animals in the air. We've got locusts, and we've got hail coming from the sky. And lastly, we have dealing with the heavens and gods, not only the darkening of the sky, literally in the heavens, but the object being that God is better than sun god, Ra, and better than the gods of life and death that the Egyptians worshipped. And that's super helpful. I think that that is indeed very, very helpful. Um, it shows that God has a, a power and a sovereignty over all things. As you work through creation, whether it is the water below or the earth beneath you or the things that crawl and creep on the earth or the things of the sky or even the gods in the heavens, God is sovereign over all those things. He is better than all of them and in more power than all of them. But we were going to organize it a little bit differently, and so today we are dealing with the second of the three triads. And plagues 1 through 3, 4 through 6, and 7 through 9 seem to form their own solitary units with number 10 and the dealing of the Passover kind of being set aside. The first three, although we, we talked about many different things with regard to those three, seems to be focused mostly on God dealing with the magicians of Egypt. Magicians aren't mentioned much more after those three plagues. And remember, in the first two, the magicians are able to copy and to do exactly the same sort of plague that God has brought upon Egypt. The third one, though, they're completely incapable of doing. And even in the two that they are able to replicate, they can't do anything helpful for Egypt. They show the power to be able to make the, the miracle worse on Egypt, but not the power to be able to lessen its impact. They can multiply more frogs, but they can't get rid of the frogs that they already have. God shows himself powerful over those magicians. Today in the second of the three triads, God is not taking on magicians, but he is taking on Pharaoh himself. 
I am a child of the 80s and the 90s, so this to me sounds a lot like every video game that has ever been created in the world. Once you beat one level, you go on to the next level, and that next level is more difficult than the one before it. So he has taken on the servants of Pharaoh. Now he is going to take on Pharaoh himself, and Pharaoh, as the embodiment and the servant of the gods, the gods themselves will be taken on in, in, in the plagues of 7, 8, and 9. God in the pairs is powerful all over all creation. In these triads, God is powerful over all authorities. Both organizations help us to see that God is showing himself powerful over all things. Here today, God is taking on Pharaoh. The object of this is simply to show that even the most powerful of men, and here this is easily meant to portray Pharaoh as the worldly power, the embodiment of worldly power, the man who has the most power of anyone in the world at this time. Even he is but a bit player in the majesty of God. Before the power of God, he is nothing. He might think of himself as the holder and the ruler of great power. He might think of himself as divine, as people might think of himself as divine. He is absolutely no match for Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Let us read of these three plagues or wonders or miracles from chapter 8, verse 20 through 9, 12. If you would read with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me or else... If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, well, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked. And removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the word of our God. Here we see God taking on the very power of Pharaoh. The first thing we find is a comparison between God's protection and Pharaoh's. God's protection versus Pharaoh's. Is seen in the very first mentioning of the miracles that God is, is making now a difference between his people and the Egyptians. And one of the things that people had mentioned was, well, wasn't he doing this all along? And there are plenty of scholars who believe that he is, and this is just being mentioned here for the first time. I don't think that that's actually the case. I think that God is now, for the first time, making this distinction between the Egyptians and his people. Because, again, what he is doing is throwing focus back on Pharaoh and Pharaoh's protection over his people. God will keep his people from suffering. Can Pharaoh keep his from like? If we were to think of anything up to this point where the people of Israel had their focus, perhaps it's being changed. We haven't heard from the people for a time. But clearly, earlier in the book, the people of Israel had their focus and their fear clearly upon not only the people of Egypt, but summed up kind of in the prince of Egypt, in the king of Egypt himself, the Pharaoh. This is why they complained about Moses and Aaron. You made us stink before them, they said back in chapter 5, verse 21. They said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They saw and they knew of the power of Pharaoh to end their lives. And they said, you have given them every opportunity. Now, every reason has been placed before them. Don't you see what you have done? Their fear is clearly on Pharaoh. It's not for any wrong reasons, good reason. They know the power of Pharaoh. They know that Pharaoh can make them work harder, as indeed he does. He can continue to increase their oppression, which was already at a fever pitch. They were worried about being flat out destroyed by him. But in God, they have something more to fear, which is what God is trying to show both his people and Pharaoh. 
He is both more to be feared and thus more to be sought out for protection. The whole point of this exercise is to show that God will protect those who call upon him, but he will have a wrath and a judgment that exists upon people who refuse that, that no man can withhold. Pharaoh, here's what's going to happen, he says. I'm going to send flies upon you. Flies are a perfectly good word for this. They're flying insects of a sort. The problem is when we think of flies, we think of those annoying things that kind of buzz around us in the summer that land on our food that we have to shoo away. These were flying insects, but likely they were flying insects that bit and stung. They, they were horse flies, maybe mosquitoes, something like that, but they, they clearly did more than just annoy the people. They probably hurt them and caused great difficulties for them. And when those kind of things would be everywhere, with no reprise, biting and stinging you constantly everywhere, it doesn't take much to think of how hellish that existence would be. The flies are released. God's showing his power to make those flies even out of nothing. And yet, at the same time, there is this kicker added on here for the first time, and God says, there's going to be this sort of like invisible fence around the land of Goshen. You'll notice what he does, which is even more impressive than just saying, I'm going to somehow give my people a balm that they can rub on themselves that will keep the insects away. He doesn't give them a recipe. He doesn't give them DEET. He doesn't give them anything that's going to help the insects not bite them. He says, in the entire land of Goshen, not just on my people, but in their land, those flies will not enter. Those insects can't come. There's going to be this sort of, like we see aliens with their like little invisible shields and Star Trek and stuff. There's like three people who like that analogy. There's, they're going to stop at the border there and they're not going to go any further. Pharaoh, what are you going to do for your people? God will protect his. Can you protect yours? And notice how Scripture continually lays the charge at the feet of Pharaoh. Let my people go. Let my people go that they may serve me. If not, I will send swarms of flies on you, on your servants, your people, your houses. The things that belong to you are going to get infected. Can you protect them? Because I will protect mine. This continues with the plague of the animals. Those animals that are found in the field that belong to you, they're all going to die. The people of Goshen, though, the, the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, can let their animals go in the field all they want to. They will eat and they will be fine. I will not visit them with this plague. He protects his own, but the power of the world can do nothing to protect theirs. Friends, this is the rub. What, what will protect you from the wrath of God? We are all, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. None of us are born pure and holy. What is going to protect you from the wrath of God? Perhaps the powers of this world can protect you from the powers of the world. I have no doubt that if you have a vast resource of money, there are a number of legal challenges that might come your way that you can fight, that you can have power over. Muscle might save you from muggers. A good military might save you from despots. And government power might save you from bad laws. But none of those things can save you from the wrath of God. There is no leader that can keep you safe, no worldly power that can help you, no horses, no chariots. No amount of money or fame can keep the flies from your skin. 
the boils off your face, or the basis of your livelihood protected. And those things that the Israelites faced from the hand of Pharaoh are real problems. They're real problems. Up to this point, Pharaoh's not trying to exterminate the people. The whole point of Pharaoh bothering the people is to keep them in the land. He wants their labor. But he does want to harm them, to bother them, to persecute them, and oppress them. And so we don't want to make light of the harm that men can do. Men do real harm in this world. And there are things that the powers of the world can do to alleviate that. But we also need to see that there is a bigger picture here. If your house is on fire, two things are probably going to go through your head. One, it's going to be horrible if my entire house burns down to the ground and and the things that I had in there that are irreplaceable because they have sentimental and emotional value, the pictures that can't be replaced that I will never now see again. Think of all the difficulty there's going to be in working with insurance and finding a place to live and buying clothes for your kids and finding temporary housing while you figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. It is a headache before the headache even hits. It is difficult and it's annoying and you know that those words come far short of the trauma that's going to be inflicted upon you and your family based on that. But the second, the second thing that probably comes to your mind if you watch your house burn down is, did my family make it out alive? One of those issues is bigger than the other. You would likely watch your possessions go up in flames a million times over then know that one of your family members is trapped in that house. Mankind has indeed lit the house on fire. And there are problems associated with that fire that are going to cause difficulty, oppression, and hardship. There are problems in this world that many people in this world face. But there is one overarching problem that, that far surpasses any of that. And that is the wrath of God that awaits people at the end of life. If you are not found trusting in Christ for your salvation, if you're not found on the side of God and his protection, there is nothing in this world that will possibly keep you from his wrath. There is no protection that this world will ever be able to afford you. It is better to be with God, to know his protection, and to suffer under the wrath of man then decide with the power of the world to know its futile and fragile protection and to suffer under the wrath of God. For God will ultimately protect his people, and neither Pharaoh nor any power in the world could possibly protect theirs. Trust in God. Second, let us speak of God's consistency versus Pharaoh's. God's consistency versus Pharaoh's. When the flies start to bite, they cause Pharaoh and his people pain. Pharaoh, like we would expect, weakens in his resolve. And immediately, he does something odd. He starts to barter with Moses. He says, okay, okay, I will let you all go. You can sacrifice to God, but you can't leave the land. After all, He needs to get something back out of this whole ordeal. If he's going to cater, he can't cater all the way. So let's let's make a deal here, Moses. I know you guys want to go away. I don't want you to go away. I'll let you sacrifice, but I'm only going to let you sacrifice. He immediately begins to barter. And Moses looks at him and says, nah, that's not going to work. 
We actually don't know what he's talking about when he he says, hey, our offerings are going to be abominable before the Egyptians. We don't know exactly what he means by that, but at the very least, he says, listen, this was the original deal presented to you back in chapter 5. When when I spoke to you the first time, I said, we're going to go. Let us go three days into the wilderness, three days it's going to be, let us go and let us do that back to the original promise. So, Pharaoh, trying to save face, notice what he says. I will let you go. This is my choice. I will let you go into the wilderness. Only you must not go very far. This is like the classic, I'm going to win something here. When we used to discipline one of my kids, um, that child would often say, go to my room, that's what I wanted. And so that's exactly what Pharaoh's doing here, right? Pharaoh's saying, I, I want you to go away. You can go away, but you can't go very far. As though, you know, Moses is like, okay, whatever. Pharaoh wants to have a win. He's got to have something to take back to his people. He wants to go back to him and say, yes, yes, yes. They, they got what they wanted. They get to go. But I made sure that they didn't go very far. And I was the one who brought all these plagues to an end. You can, you can thank me later. After all, He might consider himself a king, and he might be divine, but even divine kings need good PR, and he's searching for anything to gain here. The point of Pharaoh doing this, and the giving of the record of this discussion, is obvious. He's got nothing. He, at this point in time, is completely at a loss, and he's just doing anything he can to save some sort of face, but he's not consistent. God is not like Pharaoh. He has not backed off on his word. Everything that he has spoken has come true. There is no wavering with God. There is no compromising with God. There is no tit for tat with God. We oftentimes talk about God this way. Sometimes we talk about it faithfully. Sometimes we talk about his his loving kindness being present all the time. We talk about, in more scholarly senses, his immutability, the fact that God never changes, and all these things are related, that God is consistent. He is always, always consistent. Pharaoh is anything but consistent. He is continually blown around by the wind, and in this case, wind that is made by a couple of flies. He knows that he's powerless to win, but he also knows that he can't be seen that way, so he searches for a compromise, and this is what compromises are for. This is why we compromise all the time. It's not that compromise is bad. We, we have to compromise all the time. We compromise because we must, because we don't have the power to do things. We don't have the right to do things. We don't have all of the knowledge we need or all the wisdom that we need. So politically, we compromise, not because we're weak-willed, but because at times we have to to make things happen. We compromise in our families, in our marriage, in our children, with our parents. And I know that even saying that makes it sound like it's a bad thing, but we do this all the time because families have to work together. You've got to give a, get a little to give a little and give a little to get a little. We do it because we lack the power to do otherwise. We don't have all of the information we need. We don't have the power we need. We don't have the will we need. We lack something, so we compromise. And frequently this is good. And quite often, those who are unwilling to compromise may talk about their principles, but frankly, oftentimes they're just foolish and stubborn with pride. But God isn't that way. We need to compromise. But God never compromises. 
God never goes back on his word. He doesn't lessen it. He doesn't come to Moses and say, so, you know, I, okay, I told you at the beginning that I was going to make him thrust you out of the land and I was going to take you and give you that land. But he, he seems pretty sincere this time. And, and honestly, I, I think that this is probably a good opportunity for us to make some peace with Egypt here. And so I'm, I'm kind of changing the plan on you a little bit, Moses. He, he doesn't do that. Exact same plan exists. He knows that Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. As a matter of fact, God is going to do everything he needs to to make sure that Pharaoh hardens his heart so that Pharaoh won't continue this, so that Pharaoh will cheat. He will double back over on God and on Moses and on the people of Israel. God does this because he has always had one plan in mind, that his people will not simply go three days into the wilderness. He is going to bring Pharaoh down so far that Pharaoh will throw them out for good. There will be no bartering with God. God will not change. There's a pretty easy hermeneutical or interpretive rule to follow as you're going through the beginning of the book of Exodus. Do not be like Pharaoh. It's not terribly hard. Friends, you cannot barter with God. You can't make deals with him. You can't come to him and say, listen, I, you, you've told me to be generous. It would be really good for me. I would, I would be aided in generosity if you put me in a financial position that was a little bit easier for me to be generous in. And sometimes we say, this isn't a really a good season for me to be generous. It's not a good season for me to be giving. Which is a nice way of saying, God, you haven't placed me in a position where I can be generous and be good to your word. It comes really close at times to bartering with God. If I had better finances, then I could be generous. If I had a little more money, then I could be generous. You can't barter with God. God calls on us to pray without ceasing. Might be wanting to say things like, well, if I, if I had more time, if I didn't have as much busyness in my life, if I didn't have as, as many things going on as I have going on, then, then I, I might. God, if you, can, if you can smooth out my life, get me through this season of life, and then, then I, will, I will begin to pray more regularly. Listen, you can't barter with God. His word doesn't tell you to wait until the season is right to pray. But you are to pray now without ceasing. God calls us to love our neighbor. So you don't get to say, I will love them if you could make them just a little bit more lovable. Less, less of a moron and, and more lovable, right? I just, just a little bit, God. Because no, no, you, you were to love them as they are. God simply doesn't barter. If you were to go down to Wanigan's bakery or, or cafe just down the street, you were to want to get a cup of soup from them, it'll cost you five fifty. You can go in there and get your New England clam chowder for five fifty. You walk up to that counter, you say, five fifty, I'll give you four fifty for it. And she's gonna say, it's it's five fifty. Say, ah, driving a bargain, four seventy five. Like, no, it it's are you you are you okay? It's 550. Like 525 last offer. She's going to say 550 and you can leave, right? Like there's no bartering there because Wanigans doesn't need your $5.50. They're not in the they're not bargaining with you. They're, they're not bartering with you because they've got all the power and you've got nothing but $5.50 for soup. That's it. 
It's the person who's willing to put down the $5.50 who gets the cup of soup. Likewise, it is the person who's willing to do God's will that gets the cup of blessing. And it's not that you're earning the cup of blessing. It's that the blessing is in doing what God has spoken. God is telling you, this is the right way to live. This is the good way to live. Give, and it's good for you. Pray, because it's good for you. You're not earning the blessing, but you're trusting that God is true to his word, because God is consistent. If he says that it's good for you, it's good for you, in season, out of season. It's good, so do it. Trust in God. Don't barter with him, but his consistency is always worthy of your faith and trust. Third, and related to this, God's word versus Pharaoh's is very clear related to the former point that God's word is also being shown to be true and right as opposed to Pharaoh's. You might remember from chapter 5 that this is one of Pharaoh's main points. Moses has shown up and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, whoa, 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 wait. We can't have that. Not only will I not let them go, I don't know this Yahweh. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take away all their straw for making bricks, increasing the amount of labor. I'm going to work them to the bone. And why? In Exodus 5, 9, he says this, Let heavier work be laid on men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. Moses, you're showing up and you're saying that God is like this. You're saying that your God can do these things. Those are lying words. Your God is lying. Moses, you are lying. And I'm going to make sure that they listen to the truth. But here, throughout these three, it is quite clear that God is the one who is speaking the truth and Pharaoh is the one who is lying. Continuously throughout this entire three miracles, Scripture is drawing attention to the fact that God has spoken and he does it. It happens how and where and when God says it would. Verse 23 and 24 of chapter 8 says this, Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. Tomorrow, it's going to happen tomorrow. And, in verse 24, the Lord did so. And the Lord did it. He said it was going to happen. And then, voila, it happens. Immediately, consistently, it happens. Moses promises that God is going to remove the flies. So Moses goes out from Pharaoh and prays to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked. Remove the swarm of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. Emphatically, God keeps his word. In verse 6, The very same thing in chapter 9. The Lord set a time, saying in verse 5, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord did this thing. He said, I'm going to do this thing. I love love how Scripture says that. The Lord said he's going to do this thing, and the next day he did that thing. You could could lift that directly out of place and plop it down anywhere, and it's true, because we don't care what the thing is. If the Lord said he was going to do this thing, then he turns around and he does this thing. His word is true. He is always true to his word. What do we know about Pharaoh? Moses has already seen him vacillate. The end of the frogs. Pray that the frogs are removed. I will let your people go. And he's already turned. And Moses uses that word. Do not cheat again. You've lied already. You've cheated us already. Do not cheat again. 
It is not God, but it is Pharaoh who is deceiving, who utters lying words. Always is God's word true. Up to this point, we've known that God's word has been true, but it's been true in a very personal way. He has spoken the truth of his word to Noah and to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to, to Joseph in very personalized ways, not so that everyone can hear, but now before Pharaoh and all mankind, God is uttering the truth of his word that when he speaks, it happens. Pharaoh lies, but tomorrow this will happen and the Lord does this. Now he is speaking publicly. Therefore, everything that we do we ought to check by God's word. We ought to think through everything in the, in the terms of God's word. Try to understand everything we can in light of God's word. It is our final authority and our guiding light in all matters. And we need to be wise enough to understand that attacks on the truthfulness and the usefulness of God's word do not come from one direction only. In the Old Testament, you have a number of kings who stand up in front of people and deny the very words of God, whether found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, whether they, they should uphold to the word of the law written there and they simply deny it, or the prophets who come before him. God sends prophets to them. They hear the prophets, they persecute the prophets, they kill the prophets, but they do not obey the prophets. There are plenty of people who would flat out deny and ignore and eliminate, if possible, the very word of God. Those people are dangerous. But by the time we get to the New Testament, it is not the people who deny the word of God that are the problem. It's the people who mishandle the word of God who are the problem. And there are plenty of people in this world who will stand up and proclaim the goodness of the word of God, who will tell you that it's inerrant and infallible and sufficient for all things, and do not know how to handle it. I guarantee you, for the people who are in this room now, one of those two groups is way more dangerous than the other. Because the Pharisees can say everything good about the word of God that you can say. The Pharisees would stand up and they would, they would tell you how central the word of God is, how important the word of God is, how we need to adhere our lives to the word of God. And Jesus looks at them and says, you are whitewashed tombs. And you are wretched because you are leading men astray. We can look at plenty of people who seem like they're the first set and how they abuse the ideas of sexuality and gender on the left-hand side of whether it's our political spectrum or our theological spectrum. We use that for a number of things. They're destroying lives. But it's very easy to look through Scripture and to say that they just don't want to have anything that Scripture says be true. Scripture lays out this idea of two genders and, and that men and women are different in, in certain ways that, that can't just be bridged by wants and feelings. For many of us, that is painfully obvious. It's really only by completely denying the Word of God that you can accept almost any of their charges. People on the right, quite often, misrepresent what it means to be men and women as well. Remember, it is always more likely that you will be led astray by somebody who is tickling your ears and somebody who is poking you in the eye. You are not likely to be led astray by people on the left telling you that genders don't exist. 
you might be led astray by people who are going to push the extremes of the genders apart, who are going to talk about men in such a way that only the most masculinity of masculine men is actually a man. They will talk about men as though men should be aggressive and ferocious and bold and fighters. That's the kind of men we need. I'm telling you right now, that doesn't fit the description of men that you find in Scripture, of real, true men. If you think that those words describe men, but lowly, gentle, kind, compassionate, meek, and loving describe an effeminate man, let me introduce you to Jesus. Because while we can have Psalm 2 that tells us that Jesus rules the nations with a rod of iron, while we have Revelation 17 where he comes back riding on a horse, and Revelation 14 where he is treading down the winepress of God, and yes, there is that one incident in his ministry where he overturns tables and makes a whip. There are hundreds of incidents where he does exactly the opposite, where with kindness and compassion and love, with meekness and gentleness, he shows himself to be the Son of God. You can be led astray on the right, and you can be led astray on the left. But one of the things that you need to understand is that all of that is easily checked by the word of God. Who are men? Are they just those who are strong and bold? Paul says, in my weakness, I am strong. Jesus tells us that it's the meek that inherit the earth. Truth is, Christian men probably need to be a bit of both. But we can't allow characterizations of what we are meant to be be brought to the forefront because we're unwilling to match them up with Scripture simply because it fits a portrayal that we like. Jesus is described as violent at times, but he is meek. He is unwilling to break a bent reed. He is kind and he is compassionate. Those things are said of Jesus far more often. If anyone wants to complain about Jesus being effeminate, Again, I will direct you back to the book of Revelation where you will see the lion roaring alongside the lamb. You are called to be both. You have to continue to check these things against the word of God because men will mislead you. People will mislead you. They will guide you into vain philosophies. They will lead you astray for their own purposes and for their own good reasons. This is what Paul means in Colossians 2.8, when he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. We think of that word philosophy and we think of, well, some of you don't think of anyone in particular, but you can think of Plato and Kant and, and William James, and you can say, well, this is that high academic sort of uh, metaphysical thinking that some people do. I'm, I'm not led astray by that, but the word in ancient Greek would have just meant reasonable thought. It's any sort of reason applied to stuff. Pythagoras came up with mathematical theorems as well as other things, and they were all called philosophy. Paul's saying, do not let human reasoning take you captive. Don't rely on human reason, human arguments, human words. And I would say especially on those things that you might be already predisposed to. Make sure that you are thinking through these things in terms of the Bible, which means you've got to know the Bible. Rely upon the word of God. Lastly, 
Point number four, God's servants versus Pharaoh. This is going to be really quick. God shows himself powerful over this king of Egypt, and even his servants get in on the deal. After all, Pharaoh doesn't get to ever talk directly to God. Pharaoh has to talk to Moses. It's Moses who is telling Pharaoh what's going to happen and how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. He says, I'm going to let you go, but you're not going to leave the country. And Moses says, no. And it's Moses who gives him the warning. Don't cheat. I know you cheated before. Do not cheat us again. Moses is getting very bold. The very end, when the boils come, we are reintroduced to the magicians. And this beautiful thing, if, if you, you might not have caught it, but listen to what happens. You probably caught the fact that because the boils broke out on them, they were unable to stand before Aaron and Moses. But listen to verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them. You know who them is? Them are, it, the, them is, the magicians, right? They can stand before Pharaoh, and they can tell Pharaoh, let the people go, but they can't stand before Moses and Aaron. Even the servants of God, by venue of being on God's side, show themselves to be in more power than the power of the world. They, th these magicians think that they have a right to stand before Pharaoh, but they can't look Moses in the eye. By the power of God, Moses and Aaron stand above their foes. By the power of God, you and I, who believe in Jesus Christ, will stand as kings and queens in the midst of the earth. The very sort of picture of vice regents and kings and queens that we were meant to be in the very beginning will come to fruition in the end. Friend, keep that in mind when you are harassed and persecuted, when you're laughed at for your, your faith and the silly things that you believe based on the word of God in light of what other men and women believe. So often it is the way of the world to simply seek to get yours back. That those who are oppressed, when they come to power, seek to do oppressive things. So that they can get their shots in when they can. They can make people pay. But that is not the point of making you kings and queens. Rather, that by the power of God, you will stand in the power of God and be vindicated for what you have been persecuted for. And what's more, to show the full measure of that vindication, God will allow you to judge the world, not in vengeance, not in retribution, but in justice with sober judgment. So don't be in a hurry to gain worldly power. The power of the world does not mix well at all with the power of God. And friends, more than anything else, you don't need it. You don't need the power of the world. You need the power of God. You need the protection of God. You need the constancy, the consistency of God. You need the word of God. You need to be the servant of God. And in doing those things, in being those things, trusting that the Lord will make all things right in the end, he will protect you, he will guide you, he will strengthen you, and he will get you through. So trust in the Lord who appeared to die to the power of the world, only to resurrect himself victorious over them. Are you willing to walk that road? Not in some sort of general way. This week, are you willing to walk that road to seemingly be weak inside of the world, but to be strong in the power of God, 
to lose your life that you might find it. Yahweh has come to Pharaoh and he shows himself powerful over him. Jesus comes to the powers of the world only to appear to succumb to those powers so that he might rule over them and to give you life and you victory. Who are you going to trust? Who will you look to for your protection, for your comfort, for your good, for your hope? Will it be the power of the world or will it be the power of a resurrected Jesus Christ? Reminded of the words of the famous missionary Jim Elliott. It is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Give up your aspirations for the power of the world because you won't gain it and you won't keep it and allow the power of God to, excuse me, to work because that, friends, is a no-lose proposition. Let us pray. Our mighty God, give us faith that we might trust in you. Help us to not put stock in the many powers of this world, powers that promise advance, powers that promise good, powers that promise us power or might or hope. Indeed, you might use these for your own purposes at times, but let us always understand where our help comes from. Our help is not from chariots and horses, from worldly might and strength, from politics or militaries or from science and medicine, our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And by this trust, may you forever be glorified by your people. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.